Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. GCA is open for business today, despite the fact that churches around the country have opted not to have services. Some state officials have actually asked churches in their states to not meet or at very least to limit the before and after service activities so that there's a minimum of human interaction, so that people are not contacting other people where they might be passing on this disease. I don't understand the churches who have decided not to meet and have actual church service because if you do believe in the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible is described as being sovereign over everything, Famines, pestilences, that would mean diseases. He's in charge of earthquakes. He's in charge of tornadoes. He's in charge of locusts. He's in charge of everything that happens in this creation. So I don't understand people not getting together to give him the worship that he rightly deserves and demands because they are afraid that they might get a disease that he's in control of to begin with. I would think of all times to go worship God, this would be the time. I guarantee you that if this virus becomes anywhere near the pandemic, that some people are claiming it might become, if it does become truly pandemic, there will be people standing on every street corner, going to every church, standing on the Capitol steps and praying out, crying out to God for mercy and relief. As I said at the conference this week, it's a good thing I'm not God. Because if I were God... When it gets bad and people start crying out to me, I'd be asking, where were you? You should have been crying out to me to start with. And yet people are abandoning the worship of God because they're fearful of getting a disease. I'm afraid of a lot of things that might happen But my whole life is in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God who determines what will happen. And that's why I'm not truly afraid. And that's why GCA is open for business. Because we're doing holy business. We're doing business for our Lord and King. And we do not stop worshiping him just because something in this lifetime might go wrong. If you do contract the coronavirus and if it fills your lungs and you end up with pneumonia and you're dying, worship God. Praise God regardless because he's the creator, you're the creature. 
and he deserves to be worshipped under any and all circumstances. If you get the coronavirus and you recover, thank him, just like you would with any other circumstance in your life. We'll see where this thing goes. We'll see if it becomes a pandemic. As the weather changes, it may just kind of fizzle out and end up not being as deadly as the yearly flu is. But regardless of what happens, we believe that God is sovereignly in charge of everything that does occur. Therefore, as for me and my house, we will praise the Lord. And as long as God gives me breath, and as long as I'm not infectious, I'll stand right here and proclaim his word even if nobody shows up. Because he deserves it. He deserves a defense. He deserves his praise. He deserves his worship. And I just want to go on record as saying, good for all of you who showed up here. Because your priorities are correct. So now let's sing to that God.
Two weeks ago, we were talking election. We talked about the fact that in the Bible, Israel is referred to as God's elect. And then we talked about Christ being the elect of God. And therefore, since he is the elect of God, he has the right, the ability, the power to elect those whom he's going to redeem, who he's going to save. It turns out that those people who he intends to save are the very people that were given to him by God. That's exactly what he says. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So then God is choosing and electing. Christ is choosing and electing. And we're going to start this morning by looking at that exact electing grace and Jesus himself doing some electing. But before we do that, turn to the book of Ephesians. It's inevitable when we're talking about the predestinary will of God, when we're talking about Jesus electing and election that happened before the foundation of the world, when we're talking about all that kind of stuff, it's almost inevitable that we have to end up in Ephesians 1. But this morning, I want to go to Ephesians 1 for a different reason. Yes, we're going to read it, and yes, we're going to see all the language of election. We're going to see that God elected according to his own good pleasure, according to his own determination, and that he did these things before the foundation of the world. Those are great and grand and wonderful concepts. But what I want to emphasize this morning is that he did all those things out of love. His electing grace is a result of God's love toward his creation, toward his creatures. In fact, if you remember everything that we said about mankind's fallen state, if you remember everything about the biblical description, the biblical anthropology, and how we are all fallen sinners and how our own best righteousnesses are filthy rags. If you remember that and you know that there's nothing within us that could either please or obligate God, then for God to actually be good to anyone and bring them to his own glory can only be a result of his love. It's not a judgment. It's kindness, it's grace, it's mercy, it's all these very positive attributes of God that he is displaying in being loving and gracious to people who simply do not deserve it. And that's the language I want to emphasize here in Ephesians 1 for a moment. Reading in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us, in him 
before the foundation of the world. Now that tells you when this electing grace took place. It took place before God created the world. He already had a blueprint. He already had a plan in mind. This is what he was going to do. And since he had determined to elect and save some fallen sinners before the foundation of the world, then it's axiomatic that the fall was not a surprise to God. The fall in the garden was what had to happen in order for there to be a people who needed redemption, who needed a savior, who needed a Messiah. So he chose us, but notice that he chose us in him, and we have already established that he is the elect one. So God chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that we may be holy and blameless before him. And the next two words say, in love. Now, depending on your translation, those two words will either be attached to the sentence before or the sentence that's coming afterwards. It either says, that it was love that was the motivation that caused God to put us in Christ and determine us to be in Christ before the foundation of the world, the end result being that we will be holy, separate, utterly sanctified, and stand blameless before him, and he did all that because of his loving kindness, because he loved us. Or... It's the beginning of verse 5, in which case it is love that motivated him to predestine us to the adoption of sons through Christ Jesus to himself according to the good intention, the kind intention of his own will. Regardless of which way you read that, either way you have to say that the motivation for God choosing us placing us in Christ, guaranteeing our eternity. That determination was made before the foundation of the world. He determined our destination in advance, which is what predestining us means. He predestined us to be adopted as sons. He did that through Jesus Christ, and he did it according to the kind intention of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved one. So look, the one is beloved. God loves Christ, and he chose us, put us in Christ, and did all that before the foundation of the world, and the motivation for all of it was in love. In love is why God does those things. Now, Christianity is defined by, according to Jesus, it's defined by love. All men will know that you are my disciples, not by your works, not by your fine theology, not by your activity in the flesh. They're going to know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. Now, the reason that I'm stressing that is because through the last 2,000 years of church history, the debates over election have oftentimes degenerated into arguments where election has been turned into a form of God's severity. In other words, what they say is the critics of what we believe will say, 
Well, what about those people who want to be saved, but they're not elect? Will God just say, I'm sorry, I know you want to be saved, but you can't be because I didn't elect you. That's not the way election is described in the Bible. Election is described as a demonstration of love. When I teach election, I'm trying to teach that God was being phenomenally merciful to people who just don't deserve it. Election in the Bible is a demonstration of the goodness, the kindness, the charity, the long-suffering, the mercy of God. Is all demonstrated in the fact that he would choose utterly corrupt people. So therefore, when we talk about election, we should talk about it as a demonstration of the goodness of God. We should never use election as a barrier to people. We should never say, well, you know, if you don't adhere to even the doctrine of election, you're not going to be saved. Well, that's using election as a barrier to people. That's using election as a way to drive people or keep people away from God and his mercy. I call people, every person I can find, I call them to believe in Christ If in fact they do end up having faith in Christ, then that's a demonstration that they were elect, chosen before the foundation of the world. If they persevere in the faith, then God has put his spirit in them. And by that Holy Spirit, they have demonstrated that they are elect. As Peter says, make your calling and election certain. Sure. And the way that you make your calling and election certain is by the way that you do live out your Christianity. That is a demonstration that you have been called, that you are elect. But we don't start with election. We don't start by telling people, well, God chose some people before the foundation of the world, and you may or may not be one of them. That's not where you begin. You begin at Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Place your trust in him. And if you trust in him and then grow in the doctrine of salvation, you're going to learn that it was actually God who began that process. He was the first cause. He's the one that elected you. He's the one that predestined you. He's the one that did all that. And he did that because he's ever loved you. This is all motivated by love. And so when we talk about God's electing grace, we have to make sure that we are saying it the way that the Bible says it. And the Bible says it graciously. So then we need to make sure that we're saying it graciously. That we're saying God is altogether lovely. That Christ is altogether Savior. And that he will save you too. No matter who you are. No matter what you've done. No matter how corrupt you are. He will save you too. Start there. Don't start at trying to figure out whether that's a chosen person or not. Start with who Christ is and what he will do for them if they will just come to him. As we just sang, look and live. There's a line in that song. It's not an accident that we sang it. There's a line in that song, I have a message full of love. Hallelujah. That's what the message is supposed to be. And then that is supposed to be what encourages us to live a life of love toward each other. Because we know that God first loved us. 
And therefore we love him and the way that we demonstrate our love for him is in the way that we treat one another. I mean, for heaven's sake. And that's an appropriate phrase at this moment. <laughs> for heaven's sake, if God could look at you. I mean, I know you like you. That's just part of your sin. I know you think you're a handful of aces. You're not. And if God could look at you in your filth, in your sin, in the muck and the mire that goes on in your heart and brain, if God could look at your God-hating, totally corrupt self and nevertheless place his love on you with the intention of bringing you to his everlasting glory, if he could love you that much, then what could any of you do that would cause the rest of us not to be gracious, long-suffering, kind, and loving to you? Look, if somebody says that they are a believer in Christ and they fall, you love them. The intention is to love them back into the arms of Christ. Just this week, I heard tell of yet another preacher who fell, who's out of the pulpit at this moment, out of the ministry, because of his own sinful depravity. And it it renewed everything that I believe about human depravity and our desperate need for a savior. Don't start thinking that just because you've been walking in Christ for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years that you've reached the point of such Christian perfection that you're sanctified enough at this point that you couldn't fall. At any point, the sin that pervades your flesh can take you down. And God will preserve you and lift you up and be long-suffering with you because he has ever loved you. He's loved you with an everlasting love, and that's why in loving kindness he called you. And he will restore you, and he will set you up again, or you were never his to begin with. But if you belong to him, he's not going to lose you. So then, Knowing that that's what God has done for you, how should you treat others? Out of kindness, out of love, out of consideration, out of long-suffering. Because this thing that we all commonly believe, what Paul calls this common faith that we share, this faith that we have in Jesus and in his word, starts with, is filled by, and ends with, Love, love for the brethren, love for those that are made in the image of God. Jesus even said, love your enemies. Pray for those who spitefully use you. And I think it's easy sometimes to get so caught up in the doctrine, so caught up in the teaching and the head knowledge that sometimes we forget 
that that head knowledge is supposed to move down to our hearts. It's supposed to move into our behavior and our attitude toward other people. So it's not enough to just know the stuff of Christ or the stuff of Christianity. It's not enough to just know the doctrine. It's not enough to just have a head stuffed full of head knowledge. If you're just talking the talk and not walking the walk, you still don't understand the talk. The good news, the gospel, is meant to encourage you toward love. Got it? So we're going to talk election this morning, and we've been talking doctrine for weeks, but I don't want you to think that knowing the doctrine is equivalent with genuine salvation or genuine Christianity. Knowing the stuff should make you do the stuff, or else you don't really know the stuff. Right? Right. Okay. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. He didn't just give us a little bit of grace. He lavished his grace on us. Why? Because that's how desperate our sin was. That's how awful. I don't think human beings, again, because of our sinfulness, I have argued for years that part of our depravity is that we don't know how depraved we are because our self-justifying ego keeps us from ever knowing how bad we truly are. Because if we ever knew how truly bad we were, we'd never get out of bed. We'd never walk out into the world because we would realize that everybody else knows too. We would realize, I can't go before God. You would realize how truly, desperately wicked you are. And so you cover it all up. And you do it with nice clothing and a fancy house and hairsprays and deodorants and perfumes and everything you can do to cover, to mask the stench that is you. And then once you've covered it up sufficiently, you think you're going to go out among people and they're not going to know it. But God knows it intimately because he's high and holy and perfect and righteous without spot, without blemish, without any sin, without a variableness nor a shadow of turning. That's him. And then there's corrupt you living in your ugliness. And he lavished grace on you. It took lavishing grace to save somebody like us. This grace that he lavished on us and in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. That's why we know the doctrine. That's why we're studying these things. That's why we understand that it was God who was the first cause who chose and elected and predestined people before the foundation of the world. The only reason we know that is because he made it known to us. Otherwise, it would still be 
a mystery to us. We wouldn't know these things. He had to tell us these things. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in Christ with a view to an administration that is suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his own will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge, as a down payment of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. That's all him, him, him. He did it all. He was the first cause. He was the active agent. He's the one that sums it up. He even said it here. It all wraps up in the glory of Christ. That's the reason for the election. The election did not occur because of you. The election occurred because God wanted to demonstrate the glories of his own grace. And he did everything according to the counsel of his own will and his own good purposes and those are good purposes out of love did you see that out of love out of the kind intention of his will to accomplish his own purposes he's doing all this to genuinely demonstrate himself the all-loving all-powerful all-knowing good and gracious God that's the reason He elects people. That's the reason he sent his son onto this dusty ball full of wicked people so that his son could call some people to himself. He's the actor. You're the acted upon. You did not do it. So he did it. We're now in John 15, verse 16. We're now talking about Jesus, the chosen one, starting to demonstrate that he chooses. God chose him to be the redemptive methodology through which people were going to be saved and ultimately come to glory, a determination that God made before the foundation of the world. And then he sent his son to the planet and his son began choosing. As soon as he started his ministry, he began choosing. There were a lot of people in Jerusalem. Jesus starts Choosing. We read that he chose 12 apostles. Think about the end result of those apostles. The end result of it is he tells them, in my kingdom, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And he chose which people were going to do that. He decided that. At one point in John 15, 16, he says to them, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go 
and you would bear fruit. So even the ministry that they had of going out and spreading the gospel, even the ability that Christ gave them to drive out demons and heal sicknesses, all that fruit they were bearing was appointed to them by Christ, who chose them to do it in the first place and then gave them the power to do it and then appointed them to go and bear fruit and that that fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And then they demonstrated it. They went out healing, casting out demons, doing miracles, doing signs. Why? Because they would ask the Father in Christ's name and God would do it in order to glorify Christ. Not to glorify Peter, the first quote-unquote bishop of Rome. It wasn't to glorify John. It wasn't to glorify any of the apostles. The purpose for which God allowed them to do the miracles was to the glory of Christ. In John 13, 16, Jesus also talking speaks about his own ability to choose that he's the determining one in everybody who comes to him. They were given to him by the Father, and then he's on the planet actively pursuing them, redeeming them, bringing them to the Father. John 13, starting at verse 16, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. That's Jesus' way of saying, I'm the important one. I'm the master here. You're the slave here. Nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. He's establishing his authority over them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones that I have chosen. But it is that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Once that was written, that had to happen. Jesus was in the activity of fulfilling scripture. Once it was written down, he realized that one of the people that he chose was going to be the fulfillment of the scripture, that he would sit at the table with Jesus and yet rise up in rebellion against Jesus, turn his back on him, and ultimately cause the crucifixion of Christ. And yet Jesus says very plainly, I know who I chose. I know exactly what I was doing. I was fulfilling scripture. I chose 12 and one of them is a devil. And I knew who it was, the very son of perdition. And it's still up to me. Which means that Jesus chose his followers and he chose his betrayer. Nothing was left to chance. He does all the choosing. And he finishes that passage by saying, from now on, I am telling you before this comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Uses that proper name of God so that you will understand that I am the very son of God. I'm telling you that I chose my own betrayer so that when the betrayer betrays me, you will realize that I'm the one who told you that was going to happen and told you beforehand it was going to happen so that you would believe that I am. John 6, starting at verse 66, says, 
As a result of this, as a result of his hard teaching, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's Peter's positive profession. You are the Christ. We know that you have the words of eternal life. We know. We know. We know that. We, us, me, I, we know that. Jesus didn't allow him to think that he knew that because of himself. Instead, Jesus answered him and said, Did I myself not choose you? You're busy saying, Oh, yeah, we know. We know because we, we saw it. We've, we've seen you feed all these thousands of people with just a couple loaves and some fish. We've seen you doing these miracles and the blind can see and the lame walk. And we've seen these things. And so we've come to a positive determination that you must be the very son of God, the one that was predicted. Jesus did not allow them to say that they came to that conclusion. If their minds were open, we just read it. If they knew anything about the mystery of God, it's because God allowed them to know it. And so Jesus changes their mindset and says, did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going To betray him, Jesus is in complete control. He does the choosing. He knows the end from the beginning. He spoke the worlds into existence. And as we just read in Ephesians, it's all going to wrap up in him. As Paul writes in Philippians, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the all and in all. He is the alpha. He is the omega. He is the beginning. He is the end. He's in charge of all the things that are happening while he's on planet Earth and while he's on his throne in heaven. He's still in charge. He's in charge of revealing mysteries to people so that they will understand the things of God. He's in charge of every atom and cell on the planet. He's in charge of the coronavirus. He's in charge of everything that happens on the planet. And he says so. Yes. Acts chapter 1, starting right at the very first verse says, this first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, those that he chose, he also presented himself alive after his sufferings. Look, if it was you or me, and... The Romans killed us. And then three days later, we were alive again. We'd be showing everybody. We'd be running up and down the streets, knocking on doors, hollering in the marketplace. Hey, I was dead and now I'm alive. Dig me. 
Jesus showed himself alive to the apostles that he chose. Why? To confirm their faith. To demonstrate to them again the same thing he was demonstrating all along. I am. I'm the very son of God. I'm the Messiah. All these things that you've seen me do up until now are now confirmed in the fact that I was dead and I was raised again. And then walking on the Emmaus road, he even has to demonstrate to to two of the disciples that right in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it is declared that the Messiah had to die and raise again. They still didn't get it. They still didn't understand it. But he continued to demonstrate to his people, whether by showing up in person or by opening the scripture to them and showing it to them, he continues to demonstrate to his own, to his people, that he is the very son of God. Look, that's the only reason you know anything about Jesus. There are a whole lot of false Christs on the planet, false gospels. Paul said that was going to happen. He wrote about it to the Galatians and said that there were going to be false gospels and false Christs. But in order to know the real Christ and the real gospel and the real teaching and the mysteries of God, it has to be shown to you. It has to be taught to you. Your eyes have to be opened. Your ears have to be opened. Your stony heart has to be taken out. You have to be born again. God has to make all those changes to you, including putting his spirit in you, and then demonstrate to you, show you, give you his word, and enlighten you to the word so that you have any knowledge whatsoever of who Jesus actually is and what he actually did and how you ought to worship him. God has to show you that. To these, to these 12, to the ones he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering. By many convincing proofs he showed himself alive, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. He's speaking to Jews and he's talking to them about the kingdom of God for 40 days reassuring them that all the promises made to the fathers were still good, which is exactly what we read in Romans 16, that he was surety of all the promises that were made to the fathers. So, again, he is the beginning. He is the satisfaction and the fulfillment of all the promises of God, including the coming of the Holy Spirit, And it all wraps up in the kingdom in which he's going to be glorified as he rules from Jerusalem over the Gentile nations. And then finally, you read in Revelation 22 about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven that isn't going to have any sea and there isn't going to be any sun or any moon because he himself is going to be the light. The Father himself and the Lamb of God, the Son of God will be in their glory in the new Jerusalem. It starts with him. It was determined by him. It was decided by him. He wrote up the blueprint. He's actively doing it right now, and it's all going to wrap up glorifying him. That's the big plan. It's about him. It's not about you. My point of all that is to say, election glorifies him. It demonstrates his love. It demonstrates his goodness and kindness. And it is all part of him picking and choosing 
who he's going to show his grace to, who he's going to give his son to, who he's going to give the Holy Spirit to, who he's going to redeem forever, who is ultimately going to be in his presence for the sole purpose of praising and glorifying and worshiping him forever. He decides it all. He's God. You're not. Okay, so Jesus elects. John 15 Verses 18 and 19, Jesus, talking to those very ones he chose, said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. So Jesus even sees your differentiation, your separation from the world, your unique standing in the world as being sons and daughters of God, as something that he chose. And because he chose you, that's why the world hates you. It all has to do with his choosing, his election of you. God chose. He elected those that were going to be saved. According to 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Yeah. If God chose you before the foundation of the world, even though he knew you and what you were going to be like, even though he has foreknowledge of what's going to happen here in his creation and nevertheless sanctifies you, separates you by the spirit of God so that you will obey Jesus Christ and then he sprinkled you, verifying that you are a new covenant recipient and the blood that he sprinkled you with is the blood of his own son, that's nothing but grace. That's nothing but peace and goodness guaranteed to you because Jesus chose you. God chose you before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14 says... Now, by the way, let me say parenthetically, or even unparenthetically, let me say this anyway, because I got the microphone and I'm talking and I can say it. Oftentimes, people who are of the Arminian persuasion, who don't like the way that we explain, that we teach election, because they can't avoid the fact that election is in the Bible, You may recall when we were looking at the differences between the Arminians and the Calvinists at the Synod of Dort, that the Arminians did admit that electing grace of God did exist, but they said that the cause for it, the motivation for it, the reason for it, was that God had foreknowledge of what people were going to do, and he saw the ones that were going to believe And so he chose them in response to the fact that he saw that they had it within them to believe. 
So that was the way that they would kind of escape the idea that God chose particular people for salvation before the foundation of the world. So some of the online critics of what we believe, of Reformed theology, to this day will say, well, yes, election is in the Bible, but it's always election nationally, like God electing Israel so that Christ would come through Israel and then he was done with them, or that election is choosing certain people to certain tasks, to certain behaviors that they're going to accomplish on God's behalf. I even read this just the other day on that bastion of theological knowledge that is known as Facebook. (laughs) I read this just the other day that God, when he elects, does not elect individuals to salvation. That's not what he's doing. And they said the Bible never says that election is to salvation. Election is to a task or to national identity, but election is not to salvation. 2 Thessalonians 2 says salvation, says election is to salvation. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14, Paul writing, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you, From the beginning, we started at Ephesians 1 and we read that he chose before the foundation of the world and predestined the destiny of people. That was Paul writing, so we know what Paul's theology on it is. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. He chose certain people for salvation at the beginning of the world. It's unavoidable. The language is undeniable. The Bible clearly says God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this, this separating, this sanctification, this calling you. It was for this that he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did Paul just say or did he not that God chooses people, individuals, in this case, the believers in Thessalonica, he chose them and they believe and they are sanctified by the Spirit because God chose them from the beginning for salvation. Does it say that or not? That's what it says. Now what's very good to know is that if God chooses you, if God has chosen you, if God has placed his electing love and predestinary will on you, if it was his good pleasure to draw you and give you to his son, man, you're saved. You're in. You're about as in as you get. And I just can't begin to imagine that since he knew everything and chose you before the foundation of the world and has exhaustive foreknowledge of you, who you are, what you like, what you would do, I can't imagine that there is anything you could do in this lifetime that would make the God who doesn't change, change his mind. And say, well, I meant to save them. I did give them my Holy Spirit. I did kill my son for their salvation. 
I did intend before the foundation of the world to save them and wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life. I meant to save them, but then they did that. And I didn't see that coming, and I'm so shocked by it, I'm not going to save them. We'll talk about that more when we get to eternal security. But I just want to say right now, if God chose you, you're chose. Amen. Yes, sir. If God elected you, you're elected. Amen. And if he placed his everlasting love on you, then his love for you is everlasting. Got it? Good news. Yeah, because, look, I know me, and because I know me, I assume I know a certain amount about you. I know you're not that different from me. I know that at some point in your life you have been somewhere, done something that was so embarrassing even to you that you thought God couldn't love you because you were like that. I know we've all done it. Now on the internet they can't hear you nodding your heads. The rattling sound didn't make it all the way up here to the lavalier microphone I'm wearing. But everybody in here was nodding almost unconsciously. You had to go, yeah, yeah, I know. Because if you're honest about yourself, you know that you've done things, you've thought things, you've believed things, you've been places, you've done things where you just thought, how, how, I can't be saved. Because God can't love somebody like me. And yet his love is everlasting. He knows it's everlasting. He knows that he had to place his electing grace on you. And he had to do that according to his own goodwill and long-suffering good pleasure. Because if he left it up to you, you'd wreck it. You'd wreck it every time. And you've already demonstrated your wrecking ability. So he had to love you with an everlasting love. He had to put that loving kindness on you. Now, per Kellen, let's turn to Romans 9. I'm glad a couple of you got that. Two weeks ago, we were wrapping up, and I said, now, we haven't finished this subject. And Kellen said, are you going to get to Romans 9? And I openly and publicly berated him. So we're in Romans 9. We're going to read, starting at verse 10, we'll probably read down to verse 22, 24, right around there. Because obviously this is yet again more of Paul's language of election. Now I know that we just taught through the book of Romans, but I won't assume that everybody on the internet has heard everything we ever said or that they've spent all their time in the archives listening to all the details. It's still good to go back to what we've already taught and look at it again through the light of God's electing grace. Paul tells us this, starting in verse 10. Not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins, By one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, 
And this is really important to Paul's theology. Look at the next phrase. And had not done anything good or bad. If they haven't done anything yet that is either holy or sinful in their mother's womb, and yet God chooses between them, then he's obviously not choosing on the basis of their activity or their works. Because Paul points out, they haven't done anything. Instead, God chooses. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his election, according to his own choice, so that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. See the difference? It's not because of you and your activity that he calls you. It's because of him, for his glory, for his purpose, for his good pleasure, he does the calling. He does the choosing. He does the electing. It is because of him who calls for that reason it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. That is the common argument against electing grace. People will argue, well, that's not fair. It's not fair. It is unjust of God to choose one and not the other. What if the other decides he wants to be saved? Well, if you believe and understand everything that we've already read about God having to enlighten you in order for you to even understand the mysteries or know anything about Christ or to be able to understand the word, then there are no unelect people who want to be saved. Mm -hmm. They remain, as the Bible says, in their rebellion. They remain in their sin. Everybody who wants to come to Christ, he said, he that comes to me, I'll in no wise cast out. But who's going to come? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And he that comes to me, I will not cast out. So the equation that Jesus builds eliminates the notion that there can be some people, some God-hating, forsaken sinners who suddenly, of their own free will, decide that they want to be saved and come to Jesus. That just never happens. It doesn't happen theologically, and it also doesn't happen in real time. We don't see anybody doing that. We read in verse 14, what are we going to say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Never. May it never be. Paul is emphatic. Absolutely not. That can't be the case. And now Paul is going to demonstrate why that can't be the case, and he's going to demonstrate that God has always chosen. He chose between Moses and Pharaoh. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. That's human activity. But it depends on God who has mercy on poor defiled sinners. Because the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very reason I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, 
that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And what did he do to Pharaoh? He drowned him and all his armies after bringing a series of plagues and ultimately killing all the firstborn of Egypt. And God says, I did all that to demonstrate my power. So was God particularly concerned that that might be considered an unfair use of his creatures? Because his creatures are going to argue and say, not fair. How could you kill all those many people? Unfair. This, by the way, I'm going to say it again, is how people, unbelievers, are going to react if there is indeed some pandemic, if it does break out and many, many people die, then many, many people are going to use that as evidence of the lack of God. They're going to say, where was God in all this? If God was here and he was a good and loving God, he wouldn't have allowed all these people to die because of this virus. Except here's an example of God not only killing all the firstborn, but then drowning Pharaoh and all his armies just to demonstrate his own power. Which, by the way, if the virus kills a whole lot of people and there's a whole lot of people that don't die from it, that's still a demonstration of his power. In either killing or preserving them, that's still the sovereign one doing whatever the sovereign one wants to do because the Bible tells us that he has a long, rich history of doing exactly that. You know, when David counted the people, God brought a pestilence and started killing people. David had to get out there and had to uh, intervene between the people and God. God has a long history of demonstrating his power by killing people. You may not like that, but it's who God is and it's how God is. Paul picks that up and says, that's God demonstrating his power to Pharaoh. It does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but it's on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So, says Paul in conclusion, so then he has mercy on whom he desires. That's what he said to to Moses. He told Moses, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. I have mercy on whoever I want to have mercy on. That's when Moses was up on the mountain and said, show me your glory. God said, I'm going to take you up on the mountain, put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand so that you don't die from the magnificence of my glory passing through you. Takes his hand off at the end so that Moses sees the last trails of God's glory and his face glows. One of the things that God declared about himself as he announced his own name was that he was the God that was so long-suffering and would have mercy on who he would have mercy and that he would show compassion on whom he would have compassion. This is definitional to who God is. And then Paul looks at Pharaoh and says, so then God has mercy on who he desires, but he also hardens who he desires because God also told that same Moses, you go tell Pharaoh, let my people go, but he's not going to do it. I'm going to harden his heart. He's not going to do it. 
God has mercy on who he's going to have mercy. He's going to harden who he's going to harden. And that hardened world is going to hate him and say how unfair he is. And those people who he has had mercy on, who he has called and predestined and elected, those people who have the spirit of God and who have faith in Jesus Christ, the hardened people are going to hate the redeemed people. Demonstrated by the fact that they hated Jesus. So they're going to hate you because you have the smell of life unto life on you they have the smell of death unto death on them and they don't like it when you like a big red flag demonstrate that God does exist and Christ deserves worship because he gets all the honor and all the glory God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. So you're going to say to me, why then does he find fault for who resists his will? You're the one, Paul. You're the one that just told us that everybody does exactly what God determined they're going to do. If it's God who determines what people are going to do, then how does he also find them guilty for only doing what God said they were going to do? He's elected some people for salvation. He's hardened some people. And then he's going to judge people for the hardness of the heart that he gave them. Yes. As he doesn't redeem them. In his massive power, all power, omnipotence, he can save anybody he wants. So if he doesn't save everybody, that's a demonstration that he doesn't want to save everybody. And just like it's not because of you that he saved you, it's not because of you that he didn't. We are all collectively sinners on this planet. We're just one massive lump of no goodness. And then he plucked some brands out of the fire. And he redeemed some people and left others to their stony-hearted, God-hating ways. And it's up to him, and it's always been up to him. And that's Paul's theology, despite the fact that people are going to say, how does he do that? That's not fair. You're going to say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? And Paul's answer is, Who are you? It's one of the best answers in the Bible. I I love that answer. Who are you? Because it comes up all the time. When Job decided to make God come and answer him, God started with, who are you? God started with, who is this that darkens my counsel without knowledge? I'll shorten it to, who are you? Who are you to reply against me? I'm God. You're a worm. And you think that you're going to judge me? Who are you, oh man, who answers back to God? God can do whatever he wants. It's not up to you and what you think is fair. You don't judge God. You don't put him in the box. You don't call your witnesses. He judges you. Oh man, who answers back to God, the thing that is made is not going to say to the one that made it, why did you make me like this? Will it? And then his visual aid is, Doesn't the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for for honorable use 
and another for common use. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath that were prepared for destruction? That's like bookends to where we started. We started with God choosing before the foundation of the world which people he was going to save. If he knew everybody he was going to make and which ones he was going to save, it's obviously true that he also knew which ones he was not going to save. Those are the ones that were made anyway as vessels for destruction. It's all God. It's all God determining these things. And if you are not a vessel fit for destruction today, if you are the redeemed of God, if you have been given by God to Christ, if you have been chosen in Christ since before the foundation of the world, if he has done all that for you, I just, I just don't see how any of us stand upright and how we don't spend all our days on our face in front of him, thanking him yes. and glorifying him. And yeah, okay, coronavirus. And yeah, okay, plagues of locust. And yeah, okay, famines in the land. Yeah, okay, I could keep naming things. Bad things have happened. Bad things are going to continue happening. God deserves his worship anyway. Amen. The glory of God isn't changed one whit by the fact that there's no toilet paper at the store. <laughs> by the fact that the shelves are empty at Food Lion. God's glory is not changed just because human beings panicked. Just because we all got freaked out and, oh no, I might get sick. Oh no, what am I going to do? God's not changed. Yes. He's sitting on his throne doing whatever pleases him. That's what David said. People are going to say, where is your God? He's in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Worship him. Worship him anyway. Yes. Worship him all the time. Worship him in the good, in the bad, in the day, in the night, regardless of what's going on in your life. Don't wait for it to get bad before you call on his name. Call on him in the good times. Thank him for all the goodness that he has brought into your life. And by the way, if he wipes us all out, that's up to him. Yes. And there's nothing you can do about it. And who are you to answer back to God? Okay, so we didn't quite get done talking about election. We'll finish it next week. It'll take 15 minutes or so. And then we will start talking about the atonement of Christ. And the question is going to arise. The atoning work of Christ, was it then done for the vessels that were fitted for destruction? Did he shed his blood in order to redeem the unredeemed and the unredeemable, those people who God knew from the beginning he wasn't going to save, did Christ nevertheless suffer to attempt to save the ones he knew he wasn't going to save? Or is the atoning work of Christ specifically done for those people who God chose before the foundation of the world, who he gave to Christ? Those are the people that Christ came to the planet to save. Is that the way it works? That's an argument that's been 
going on for 2,000 years in the Christian church, I don't think the Bible is in any way confusing about it. We just have to stand toe-to-toe with what the Bible says. Okay? Okay. Now, is there men's group this week? Or is it canceled for any reason? <laughs> any reason? He's planning on being here. I plan to be here. Yep. Tom plans to be here. Kenneth, you're going to be here? Yep. Good. Jeff, you're going to be here? He's going to do it online. <laughs> we will just FaceTime Jeff in because he's very paranoid. Look, I'm going to be here Wednesday. I'm going to be here Tuesday. I'm going to be here Sunday. I'm going to be here as long as God gives me breath. And if I die... I will die worshiping him. My last words are going to be praise for God because he can do with me whatever he wants to do and glorify him is, is why I exist. It's what I was made for. It's why I even was created. So I'm going to praise him and worship him with my dying breath because right behind my dying breath comes everlasting glory. And I can't wait for that part. So why would I leave the planet not glorifying the God that's going to do all that for me eternally? The last thing I plan to do in this lifetime is worship him because he deserves it. Yes. Okay? Okay. We good? Yes. We're saved. We're saved. That's a fact. Anybody but Kellen got questions. <laughs> We're good? Thank you. Okay. Grab your hymn book. I think this hymn fits perfectly with what we've just been saying. Hymn 318, I need thee every hour.
for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.